I think there's this stereotype that a lot of people have of the finger-wagging, self-righteous, dogmatic, judgmental vegan. I just want people to have enough information to make the most informed decisions. They just have to live with whatever decisions they make. As much as this country claims to care about children, we need to see some action. You know, we can see some priorities shifted where we can actually be putting more money into feeding children healthful, good food, real food. From Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina, this is Sound Effect. Here's your host, Megan Hayes. Chef, author, and food justice advocate Bryant Terry is a 2015 James Beard Foundation Leadership Award winner, renowned for his activism to create a healthy, just, and sustainable food system. In particular, he focuses on ways to increase access to healthy, affordable food. Born and raised in the southern U.S., he is currently the inaugural chef in residence at the Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco, where he creates programming that celebrates the intersection of food, farming, health, activism, art, culture, and the African diaspora. Terry is the author of the critically acclaimed Vegan Soul Kitchen, Fresh, Healthy, and Creative African-American Cuisine, which was named one of the best vegetarian vegan cookbooks of the last 25 years by Cooking Light magazine. Terry authored The Inspired Vegan, and he co-authored Grub, which the New York Times called Ingenious. Terry also served as the humanities advisor on the Between Meals Cookbook Project, which shares the recipes and stories of newly arrived refugee and immigrant women and explores how they have nourished their families in the United States. Terry's fourth book, Afro-Vegan, was published in April 2014. In December of that year, it was nominated for an NAACP Image Award in the Outstanding Literary Work category. Terry is the host of Urban Organic, a multi-episode web series that he co-created, and he was co-host of the public television series The Endless Feast. He also served as an expert on the Sundance Channel's original series, Big Ideas for a Small Planet. He's also made dozens of national television and radio appearances, including being a guest on The Martha Stewart Show, Emerald Green, All Things Considered, Morning Edition, The Splendid Table, and The Tavis Smiley Show. A lifelong learner and educator who leads by example, Terry encourages others to always be mindful of ways to eat differently. Terry graduated from the Chef's Training Program at the Natural Gourmet Institute for Health and Culinary Arts in New York City. He holds an MA in History from NYU and a BA with honors in English from Xavier University of Louisiana. He lives in Oakland, California with his wife and their two daughters. Bryant Terry, welcome to Sound Effect. Thank you for having me on. I'm so glad to have you here today. I want to get started with a very basic question. What is a vegan? What is a vegan? A vegan is one who avoids any animal or animal-derived products. And, um, you know, I, I feel like I need to say this up front. For my body of work, for my mission in creating healthier communities, you know, I've been very clear that eating more plant-centered diets, more whole food diets can be very effective in preventing chronic illnesses and helping to ameliorate symptoms and sometimes, in some cases, reversing chronic illnesses. But, you know, if, if it were up to me, I wouldn't put so much focus on vegan. Um, my goal is to get people eating real food again. I think um, the culprit to this exponential rise in preventable diet-related illnesses that we've seen in our country is directly related to the standard American diet, which is replete with a lot of processed and packaged foods and, and far too much meat. And I, I would like to see people eating um, fewer animal products. I would, in some cases, I, I, I want people to be aware of the implications of eating animal products. There are a lot of arguments that um, I and many others could make about why we shouldn't eat animal products, environmental 
uh, economic, um, certainly ethical when we think about the horrible way in which many animals are treated in our industrialized food system. But it gets tricky when we start talking about, um, you know, kind of prescribing diets for better health. Uh, I think it's important to recognize that everyone's so different. Everyone's body uh, constitutions are different, their bodily needs, their cultural food ways. And so I really want people to consider all these factors when thinking about what's best for them to eat for, you know, better health and well-being and not kind of think or imagine this panacea, you know, whether it's vegetarian or vegan or raw food or whatever diet that um, whatever the new latest um, fad diet that'll make you the healthiest and strongest is and just be thoughtful about um, what they're eating every day. So you present yourself as an Afro-vegan, and what does that mean exactly? I don't, though. That's the thing. Is You know, my publisher, I mean, and it's just one of those tricky things where you work with a corporation to produce your work, and um, they, they have certain ways of marketing it. And, you know, I, I certainly don't have problems with it. You know, I think a lot of people actually get excited when they hear that. Um, but when we talk about this whole concept of Afro-veganism, for me, it's putting food of the African diaspora in the center of this conversation around eating healthful, specifically when we talk about communities of color and the fact that in the United States and increasingly abroad, people of African descent are suffering from some of the highest rates of preventable diet-related illnesses. And I think that, you know, one of the criteria I always talk about is like eating your ancestral foods. What were the foods that our grandparents and their parents were eating? You know, how did they um, maintain these healthful lifestyles before we had this very industrialized, sedentary lifestyle that we live today. And so I just want people to, you know, get back to eating real food. And with the Afro-vegan concept, it's just kind of like celebrating these staples and flavor profiles and ingredients from the African continent, the Caribbean, and the American South, and really, you know, seeing those as something that can bring health, can bring life, can bring just pleasure into um, people's kitchens. And not just, and you know, certainly I I am invested in more African-Americans and other people of African descent eating these type of foods. But I feel like these are foods that um, I want everyone to enjoy. I think, you know, if you think about the diverse food cultures throughout the African continent, this huge continent <laughs> through the Caribbean and just diverse cultures um, of African-American eating throughout the American South and then increasingly throughout the um, country as people, you know, spread through great migration and other, um, you know, waves of kind of taking those food cultures from the South and spreading them around the country. It's just, it's, it's good food. I mean, who doesn't like black eyed peas and cornbread and, you know, a good mess of greens and, you know, just the foods that I ate up, I grew up eating and a lot of the Southerners grew up eating. And I, I really want to push back against these stereotypes that African-American food, that Southern food is all bad, that it's just, you know, artery clogging, unhealthy, just like the bane of the health of African-Americans and, and other Southerners. And I really want to, you know, the culprit, I think we all need to be aware of is this meat process, um, package heavy, um, fatty diet that most Americans are eating. And, and we're seeing the effects, um, you know, particularly here in the South. So it sounds like you're not trying to convince people necessarily to become vegan. I, you know, I just try to stay away from that, that, um, I think it just gets tricky. I, I, you know, I started before I thought about writing a book, before I started doing public speaking around these issues, I was working with young people in New York City. I founded an organization called Be Healthy, and our goal was to 
politicize and enlighten young people around these complex food issues. And our approach then was we wanted to give them the most information so that they can make informed decisions because we knew that they were getting so much of the corporate story. You know, they were getting bombarded with these ads and jingles and uh, billboards and, you know, things that were convincing them to eat the worst foods, high in fat, high in salt, high in sugar. You know, you can't blame children or any individual when there's this, you know, bombardment with things telling them to eat the worst foods. So our goal was, you know, help them understand. Well, one, help them understand the negative impact that overconsuming those type of foods had on their bodies and minds and spirits, but also helping them understand the um, the opposite. You know, what happens when you eat more fresh food, when you eat more, you know, fruits and vegetables, when you're you know, eating fewer meat products and just how that can have a positive impact on their bodies. And so once we did that, we told them that it was up to them. If they wanted to continue eating McDonald's every day or, you know, drinking sodas every day and eating a lot of processed and packaged foods, then they had to live with that decision. And so in general, my approach is let me help to educate consumers, eaters, you know, Americans and others about what's happening in our industrialized food system, what's happening with factory farming, how that's impacting animals and the environment and local economies, you know, how eating more local, seasonal, sustainable and fresh whole foods can have such a positive impact on our own personal health and well-being, on communities, on local economies, and then let people make their own decisions and they have to live with that. So I don't want people, I think there's a stereotype that a lot of people have of the finger wagging, self-righteous, dogmatic, judgmental vegan. And so it's always been this fine line of me presenting this information, but trying not to fall into that way in which a lot of people imagine them because it, it turns people off. Right. Yeah. You know, when they, it's like, I think a lot of people have had such negative experiences <laughs> with vegetarians and vegans who are proselytizing and, you know, attempting to get them eating the way that they think they should eat. And then it just like, if you say those words, people often will turn the other way and run. And so I, I want to recontextualize and help people reimagine these things as compassionate and fun and delicious and not, um, you know, heavy and, you know, overly political and self-righteous. Mm-hmm. Do you get feedback from people who feel like a vegan lifestyle diminishes nutrition? Hmm. You know, maybe you're raising your children vegan and who mm -hmm. are worried that they're not getting enough protein or that, you know, they might not grow up healthy. Does that ever, I, ever hear that, I hear that a lot. Um, and you know, the thing is most often when I hear that argument, it's coming from people who are adamant that a vegan diet is just a bunch of crap. And it's usually an argument used to undercut any kind of uplifting of a plant-based diet as something that can be helpful and, you know, beneficial. Um, I do think that one might need to be a little more thoughtful in getting protein and getting a lot of micronutrients. I mean, I think in general, because of our industrialized food system, the food that we grow, it's not as nutrient rich as it was 40, 50 years ago. And so I think we all should be considering the ways in which, you know, eating vegetables and fruits from the supermarket that um, have been shipped from California, as most food in this country is, is going to be much less um, nutrient rich as food that's grown locally, that's been harvested, you know, that morning or the day before. And so I, I, I think in general, we need to be thinking about how our consumption decisions are impacting our, our health and, and all the other things, you know, talking about local economies and, you know, supporting our neighbors. But just if we're sticking to the whole conversation around what's most healthful, I think people can eat a diet that has a lot of meat in it and it could be a really unhealthy diet.
if you want to look at it like this clean meat, I mean, or versus not clean meat, I mean, you can be eating um, really horrible meat products that aren't giving you the supposed nutrient benefits that you might get from meat that's more clean. And so, you know, and, and I know there are some vegans who might be listening to this and, you know, how dare you even talk about meat in, in these ways. But I feel like we just need to understand this reality that there's some people who are not going to give up meat. You know, I can use my parents as an example. And I feel so I just feel so good that they've made these small strides, mm-hmm. you know, since they've read my books and watched films and read other books that I've recommended. And they only shop at the farmer's market now for most or primarily for their produce. And they don't eat white sugar anymore. And they try to have smaller portion sizes. But both of them are pretty adamant that they like to eat meat. They don't do it as often, but they're going to occasionally do it. And so I try to help them find resources in their community where they can get meat that's quote unquote clean. And so, you know, I, I, I think I can, you know, be hard line and some people might see it as like morally self-righteous to just talk about um, a plant-based diet or just to promote a vegan diet. But I'm a realist and I really want everyone who eats to understand all these complex issues and all the options that are out there. As I said earlier, I just want people to have enough information to make the most informed decisions. And then um, they just have to, you know, live with whatever decisions they make. Yeah. You know, um, you're talking about kind of what's realistic. And um, one of the things, you know, we're in the mountains, even though we're in the South, um, you know, and we have these fantastic summers where you can grow things, but then there's a long period of time where you can't grow stuff because our growing season is really short. So what about the off season? How, you know, how are you going to eat fresh in February or March? You know what I mean? Well, you might not eat fresh, but we got to go back to the olden days. We got to do it like grandma used to do, canning, pickling, preserving. I mean, there's so many ways in which the food from the bounty of the fall and the summer are preserved. So in those leaner months, you can actually have a lot of food that um, you can eat to, you know, kind of create a diverse diet. You might not be able to get as much fresh food, but, you know, there are options of going to the conventional supermarket and getting food that have been shipped from other parts of the country. But I, I just feel like, you know, we have to get back in tune with the natural rhythm of the earth. I really believe that, you know, Mother Nature knows what we should be eating. Obviously, in the summertime, the earth is producing more like watery fruits for and vegetables, for example, cucumbers and watermelons and these things that are very hydrating. And then in the winter, we're eating more, you know, grounding and warming and um, filling foods like tubers and root vegetables. And so, in our industrialized food system, you can get strawberries in the dead of winter. You can get, you know, root vegetables in summer. You can get everything all the time. And I, I just think it's something to consider in terms of just like, you know, being mindful about what we're eating and kind of getting back in tune with um, the natural rhythms of the earth. And that means that you might not be able to eat mangoes in the dead of winter. Or you might not be able to eat strawberries in the um dead of winter but you know it gives you something to look forward to you know it's like hey spring's coming right the asparagus is gonna appear soon or those fresh strawberries are gonna be appearing in the next couple months and so um you know i firmly believe that these practices like canning and pickling and preserving we need to revitalize them and we need to tap into this wisdom of a lot of the ancestors or the elders i should say who are still alive and who maintain those practices throughout their life and being able to like learn them and reproduce them and then teach them the younger generation. So um, I'm all about that. Yeah. So um, let's talk about the history of the local food movement for a minute, because I think that 
it does maybe seem a little faddish maybe to, you know, younger people, but, um, you know, this has been around for a while, right? And, you know, do you think it's gaining more ground or do you think it's having a resurgence or? So it's funny because it's not funny, but the reality is, is so much of my work is driven by memories of my own family having these practices. Um, And they didn't call it local food. They didn't call it like the organic, you know, local seasonal sustainable movement. This is just the way that they live. My family had farms in rural Mississippi and Tennessee and Arkansas. We had backyard gardens all the time in Memphis where I grew up. And so I think about my paternal grandfather, uh, Andrew Johnson Terry, and he more than a garden. He had an urban farm in his backyard because literally every bit of available space was being used to grow food. He had pigs, he had chickens in the backyard. We're talking about like a neighborhood adjacent to downtown Memphis, Tennessee. And so because of that, all the grandkids, myself included, we had to be a part of the process of like planting and growing and tending and, you know, then like shelling and chucking, which I used to hate. But (laughs) I, you know, I just so appreciate having spent that time and just knowing that this is just the way that that generation knew how to survive. And he would talk about that. He wasn't um, a highly educated person, but he was so wise and he used to just share so much knowledge. And, And one thing he used to say to me often is that you need to be equipped to grow your own food. Because if you depend on other people to feed you, as soon as they decide not to feed you, you're going to starve. And so um, <clears throat> I forget the question you asked me. I feel like I'm just kind of like going on. No, I think it's about that importance oh. of each person understanding the origin of their food culture, you know? I mean, yeah, you know, as you were saying that, I was thinking about, you know, going to my great-grandfather's house and all the family like picking strawberries. And mm-hmm. that was this big thing. We would pick the strawberries and then, you know, haul the strawberries and cut them. And, you know, then my grandmother would make tons and tons and tons of strawberry jam. And just even, I hadn't even thought about that until you started saying that. So. Well, so my where, where I was going is that... That I think there's almost this kind of collective amnesia that people have. And when you said, you know, I kind of didn't even remember that. And I feel like this industrialized food system, it facilitates people forgetting these practices. And so my, and I always say, one, the work that I'm doing is standing on the shoulders of many ancestors before me, my blood ancestors, spiritual ancestors, people who have been doing this work, whether, you know, kind of intentionally as activists or just like, hey, Let me do this so we can have like a thriving community. And I want people to remember these things. And when I, when I give talks across the country, I'll be like, you know, one of the first things I do is ask people, you know, how many people had farms in their family when they were growing up and how many people had gardens and how many people canned and pickled and preserved and how many people actually made food from scratch and didn't actually just like cook it in a microwave. And so inevitably most people are raising their hand and Folks have a similar response, like, oh, man, I totally forgot. Yeah, Nana had, you know, this garden. And yeah, Meemaw used to pickle. And so I I just want people to remember that it's not that big of a stretch for us to think about eating and kind of maintaining these practices. Because just a few generations ago, many people in our own families uh, maintain these practices. And I think it's about, you know, talking to the elders, talking to those living about the ancestors and just really getting a sense of what they did and um, see it as in addition to the benefits that it has for us just honoring the hard work that they did before we came. Do you think the act of acquiring, preparing, and um, eating local food ties into social justice? I do. I do. You know, I often talk about the economic benefits of eating locally and seasonally and sustainably. When I was hosting a show on PBS 
the endless feasts, we traveled around the country and talked to these small farmers and independent artisans and, you know, people who are producing food in these beautiful and powerful ways. And there was this constant, um, I, I heard it a lot of times, I'm not going to name the corporation, the grocery chain <laughs> that was often implicated, but they talked about, many farmers would talk about feeling so cheated because um, this one particular food corporation would buy their tomatoes at a very cheap price. And then they go into the market and see them being sold, you know, five or six times the price that they, um, you know, sold them for. And so, you know, when I hear that, it makes me think about the way in which supporting our local farmers, whether the farmer's market or local CSA or actually going to the rural farm, they get so much more money from every dollar that we spend. I think on average, you know, if you buy food at the farmer's market, the farmer actually gets 90 cents for every dollar that we spend. Whereas when you go to a supermarket, the farmer is probably getting about 10 cents on every dollar because so much of the money is being spent on packaging and shipping and marketing and all these other external costs. And so just the simple act of buying food locally is a way that we can support our neighbors, you know, the people who really care about us, who care about growing food with integrity, who care about growing food sustainably, who really care about feeding their neighbors. And so I'm I'm so about like doing it for all these other reasons. And it's hard because if you start talking about like the economic and environmental benefits, a lot of people just shut down. So for me, mm. one of the reasons I started writing cookbooks is because I think starting with delicious food is such a powerful way to even move people towards all the political and environmental and economic reasons. My guiding mantra has been start with the visceral to ignite the cerebral and end with the political, because I think these seemingly apolitical acts such as growing food, making meals from scratch, building community around the table can be a powerful bridge to get people to think about changing their own habits and attitudes and politics around food and actually being more active in transforming their communities. But starting with the politics and activism, <clears throat> I don't know if that's the most effective way. And it's been, it was one of my critiques when I started doing this work in 2001, just seeing a lot of people who cared about these issues deeply. I feel like they were kind of misguided when they started with those things, because mm -hmm. I feel like that's a very kind of like activist approach. Mm -hmm. And I think that you have to have a human approach to get people to think differently about food. And that's just like feeding people. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we've been talking about this issue as people who have choices. Food insecurity is a significant issue in North Carolina um, and in our county. Um, 2014 data show that nearly 25 percent of our state citizens face food insecurity and nearly one in five face the same challenges in Watauga County, which is where we are. You know, in eating local, it can be more expensive in terms of either time or money. So what solutions are there to help increase access to healthy food for people who might be choosing between spending money on food and spending money on medicine or heat? Mm -hmm. I could give you my kind of larger philosophical answer about the way in which we need to fundamentally question capitalism. And we need to think about the ways in which wage inequality and the lack of jobs and all these things impact people's ability just to be able to take care of themselves and their families. And I understand the reality of a young single mom who has to work two or three jobs just to put food on the table. And then we need to think about, well, why is it that wages are so low, especially when these corporations that are often paying these, you know, 
pittance of wages are some of the wealthiest corporations in the world. Their CEOs are getting paid billions of dollars. You know, the CEOs are getting paid, you know, 300 times what the actual like workers are getting paid. So I think we have to question those things. I don't, I think it's a band-aid solution if we kind of like think about fixing these problems without getting to like the core problems of capitalism and the way in which it creates inequality and how the wealthy 1%, the people who are running the corporations, the people who are owning are making a lot of money, and the people who are actually uh, running the corporations because they're the workers and they're putting in their labor aren't getting um, paid what they should be. And, and so I say that to say that understanding the structural inequality that prevents people from having access to healthy, fresh, affordable food, it, one, makes me, and I think it should make most people compassionate and, and just not to judge. You know, and I see a lot of food shaming and judging of poor people. And I think that's a huge problem because it fails to recognize these structural inequalities. And so if a, if a you know, young single mom is going to McDonald's and getting food from the dollar menu, of course, I'm aware of, you know, how unhealthy that can be and how unsustainable that could be for her. And But who am I to judge? Because I understand the situation that they're in. Right. And I think that in order for us to address these problems on the ground, we have to get out of this kind of individualistic capitalist mindset of, I need to address every single problem by myself. And I think we need to have collective action with all these different stakeholders in the community, especially the ones that claim to care about the community. And I'll give you an example. I think about churches, faith-based institutions. I don't know if you've ever been to a church, but I've been to churches across the country that have these fantastic industrial kitchens that have been just like dormant for like two decades. You know, you go in there and it's cobwebs. It's clearly it hadn't been used. So I think about something like that. And I think, what if the preacher, the reverend, the, the spiritual leader of that um, institution decides that in addition to spiritual sustenance, they were going to have a, a keen focus on, you know, improving the physical health and well-being of their, um, the members, right? And so then what if we just like revitalize this kitchen? What if we open it up and we use it as a space to incubate small food businesses? What if we used it as a space where we have elders in the community coming in and passing down these traditions like how to can and pickle to preserve, how to make food from scratch? What if the same church that has this huge plot of land that's just being you know, you know un underutilized or not used at all, um, what if you convert it into a community garden or urban farm and then you're actually growing food that you can give away to the members of the church? And then what if on Saturday you had like 15 people in the church going to the farmer's market and buying all this amazing food in bulk? And then you come back to the church and then, you know, you make a big vat of stew. I make a casserole. Someone else makes some, you know, some pasta. And then we all have these collectively made fresh healthful foods that we can, you know, divvy among the group and share throughout the week. And so that's just one example of the way that I think people can come together collectively, facilitated by these institutions and communities, and actually um, help each other to eat more healthfully, help each other to have fresh food, help each other to feed their families. Mm -hmm. And so I, I just want to see um, more institutions that claim to care about communities being active in this movement around healing communities, around feeding people, around um, building a more healthier and sustainable food system. Yeah, 
Related to this, you know, there's a large population in our county on free or reduced school lunches and a big challenge for school systems. And I, you know, I've, this is my big beef is just the school lunches. I, I, <laughs> I have this personal vendetta against the school lunches. And I spoke with one of our, uh, you know, our school board members about this. And he said, you know, the biggest challenge for them is how do they purchase food in mass quantities because they really literally have pennies to spend yeah. on lunches, um, you know, per meal. So even when there's a lot of momentum across the country supporting local food and we have people right here who are growing it, it can be cost prohibitive to yeah. do that. Have you seen this in other areas of the country and have you seen solutions to that? Well, I will say that when I first started doing this work back in 2001, I argued that the two sites that could be most powerful in transforming our food system could be faith institutions and schools. And the two sites that gave me the most resistance were faith institutions <laughs> and schools. <laughs> and it, it, you know, it was, it was really sad because it really turned me off from doing work with schools. And I just understand the bureaucracy and just like why it's so challenging to, you know, kind of move this huge ship in a different direction. Things are changing. I mean, that was a long time ago and we've seen the farm to school movement just completely shift. And I mean, there are a lot of really powerful models across the country. I think about one, a lot of people know about the Edible Schoolyard in Berkeley, California, mm -hmm. and the way in which, you know, the whole school has thought about the ways in which collectively they can work towards feeding their children better. And, you know, and they have like this amazing garden. They have the kitchen staff who's actually using food from the garden to make fresher food. You know, they have salad bar. And so all that to say is there are some models out there. And we need to think about just like the practical issue of like, where are we going to get the money from? Once again, <laughs> I think we need to think about like these issues around like inequality. Why mm -hmm. is it that we can't find enough money to prioritize feeding our children well, but yet our defense budget is just like enormous? As much as this country claims to care about children, we need to see some action. You know, we can see some priorities shifted where we can actually be putting more money into feeding children healthful, good food, real food. At the end of the day, if we want to see just this whole system be sustained, we have to invest in children. I mean, there's a growing body of research that connects nutritious diets with academic achievement, with behavior, you know, good behavior, with just the ability just to be still and pay attention. And so I just think that there needs to be priorities shifted so that we can actually find ways. We can creatively find ways. And I've seen it happen. And a lot of times, you know, school districts need to be very creative, fundraising outside of the school, you know, doing a lot of reaching out to experts in the community to kind of help these efforts, like, you know, with the master gardeners and, you know, different chefs who are in the communities. And so it may require people volunteering time, but once again, how can we come together as a community and be part of kind of like growing this movement to feed our children better and to create healthier food systems? I've kind of broached it, but I feel like I just have to say that if we want to transform our food system, we need to think about ways in which we can be active, not just as individual consumers. And I think we need to. And I think that it's important that we understand every dollar we spend as a vote for the type of food system that we want to see. But the reality is that consumer change is simply not enough to transform our food system wholesale. We need to be active as consumers, but we need to also be active as community members. And that's what we've been talking about for the past couple of minutes. How can we as community members, different stakeholders, different organizations come together and uh, work towards transforming our food system? But lastly, we have to be active as citizens. We need to vote with our vote. We need to ensure that we're putting elected officials 
in office on the federal level, on the state level, on the local level, who care about these issues, who truly get it, who truly understand the dire need to shift our priorities and to work towards healthier food systems, to work towards healthier communities, to work towards ensuring that our children and our grandchildren actually have healthier lives and have a longer lifespan than our parents' generations. One of the things that troubles me is that this generation of young people is at risk for having a shorter lifespan than their parents' generation. And that's just not right. As many technological advances as we have and as many resources that we have, these children should be living longer and healthier lives than us. And that's just not the case. Yeah, I've heard you talk about how important it is to make policy changes to combat nutrition issues. What does that look like to you? I think it looks like we have a presidential election coming up. And I think it's important that people think about what candidate is reflecting their values and ensuring that they do all they can to put that person in the office. But I think you get a lot of bang for your buck investing time in local elections, doing things like creating food policy councils, changing laws in local areas around like, and I don't know what the, a lot of the um, restrictions around like, you know, urban homesteading or growing food are in this area, but, you know, just little things that can actually facilitate people eating more healthfully or, you know, having more local food systems, supports for small farmers. We know that many of the subsidies are going towards the the wealthiest agri-corporations where you have small, independent, hardworking, good family farmers who can barely survive, who have to take jobs outside of their job of farming just to keep their family afloat. And why can't those small farmers get some subsidies too? Why can't we help them to be as sustainable as we're um, doing for these big wealthy corporations helping minority farmers. And by minority farmers, I mean not just white male farmers, women farmers, um, you know, many of the immigrant farmers, many, you know, African-American farmers who suffered, you know, decades of discrimination, oftentimes by the USDA. So there are ways in which our government could be very active in um, creating a more healthier and just food system simply through policy changes. And that has to come from us. And that's why, you know, I always talk about people power, grassroots activism, because ultimately all these institutions, the people are the ones who are in charge. I think people get it confused and they think, well, you know, it's the preacher up there, but it's no, this is without us, without the people in the pews, the preacher wouldn't have any um, power at all. And so we need to make demands so that they can guide institutional change. We need to understand that those people in office or because we put them there. And if they aren't making decisions in our best interest, we need to get kick them out and put someone else in the office who are actually going to be making decisions in our best interest. So it's all about people power. <laughs> One thing that um, I think is really interesting is the work that you do is about the diaspora. And um, particularly as a descendant of an Appalachian um, or of, of Appalachians, um, there's this kind of Kind of, I'm interested in kind of the concept of cultural appropriation, particularly when it comes to food. Mm-hmm. So Appalachian food kind of every so often seems to become a fad and then it gets a resurgence. And right now I think it's experiencing a resurgence. And so there are these kind of upscale urban restaurants that are kind of taking on the Appalachian culture. And one of the things that I've heard is um, instead of the food leaving our region, perhaps we should be bringing people to our region to experience the food. Mm -hmm. So do you see value in food leaving or people coming to a region in order to experience that food? Um, I'm just interested in your thoughts about kind of that location-based experience of of food and, you know, in its authentic setting. 
so I'm not totally against um, different, you know, regional or cultural foods being celebrated outside of that context, because I would expect that a chef who was born and bred in Appalachia, for example, if they move to a different geographic location to celebrate their cultural foods and to uplift those roots. I, and I think the issue that I have is whether we're talking about, you know, regional foodways or different cultural foodways is this phenomena that we've seen where you have um, oftentimes white males who are um, have the privilege of going to culinary school or have the access to capital to start businesses who will make these foods and make a lot of money off of these different regional foodways or cultural foodways. Mm -hmm. And they may not necessarily be from those regions or they may not necessarily come from those cultures and they may not necessarily have a genuine respect for the people of those regions and cultures. And that's where it gets thorny for me because mm -hmm. I think that when you take these traditions that people have just maintained and worked hard to um, have be sustainable over you know generations and then take it out that context and then see it purely as a way to generate profits, then I think that's when, you know, things get tricky. But I just wanted to say, because you were talking about it before I forget, you were talking about what's happening in Appalachia. And it's something that I often, I feel like I have to say this because so my work has been focused on the issues that people are dealing with in cities, in urban centers, most often, um, you know, low income people of color. But it's so important for me to bridge those gaps and to show that the same type of issues around food insecurity that low-income people of color are dealing with in cities, you often have poor white people in different parts of Appalachia dealing with similar issues around food insecurity, similar issues around you know, these preventable diet-related illnesses. And I just think there are opportunities for collaboration. I think a lot of the rhetoric that we've seen in this um, <clears throat> current presidential election has been very divisive. And it's, you know, been mostly about illuminating differences. Mm -hmm. But I think oftentimes there's so many things that we have in common with people who might live thousands of miles away from us. And I think, you know, recognizing and kind of like, understanding these differences can actually be a part of healing and, and just helping people understand that we're not that different, you know, no, no matter what our skin color is or our geographic location is. And for me, I have focused a lot on the issues that pertain to people of color because I'm an African-American man. But at the end of the day, I'm invested in healing the planet for everyone. I'm invested in creating healthier foods um, for everyone. I am just a humanitarian. I love everyone. I want people to have the best in life. And so no matter where one lives, what color one is, I want people to be able to have the best that we all should have, you know, what's available to us. And so um, that's how I want to end it. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Brian Terry's been my distinct pleasure to speak with you today. I think your thoughts on activism and really your thoughts about bringing people together in a community. Food is, you know, such a, a common denominator mm -hmm. when it comes to creating community. And, and I really look forward to everything that you're going to be doing on our campus for the next few days and also hope that you coming here will allow your presence to last a little bit longer on our campus. So thank you very much for joining us in the studio today. I, I really appreciate your time. I'm so happy to be here and I'm so happy to hear that people enjoyed my food. Oh, it was fantastic. <laughs> fantastic. Yeah. I'm going back to get a piece of that chocolate cake, take back to my dad. So yeah. There you go. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Today's show was written and produced by Troy Tuttle, Dave Blanks, and me, Megan Hayes. Our sound engineer is Dave Blanks. 
Our web team is Pete Montaldi and Alex Waterworth. Our theme song was written and performed by Derek Wyckoff of Naked Gods. Our podcast studio is dedicated to Greg Cuddy. Special thanks to Stephen Dubner for the inspiration, advice, and moral support. Sound Effect is a production of the University Communications Team at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. Thanks for listening. For Sound Effect, I'm Megan Hayes.